KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. We all know how much damage misinformation and disinformation have done to society, but how do we combat it? Get people to understand the difference between truth and fiction, specifically in what they read online. Perhaps the answer lies in the idea of information literacy and teaching it to as many people as possible. That's a topic we wanted to lean into, and our guest is Dr. Denise Augusto. She is a professor in the College of Computing and Informatics and director of the Masters of Science and Information program at Drexel University. This is really interesting and important. Give a listen. I'd kind of like to get some definitions from you because I think there are some terms that we throw around that people have a general idea, but maybe don't specifically know uh, what they mean. And I would like to start with the idea, what is the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Can you break that down for us? Sure, Matthew. That's a very good question. The difference is pretty simple. Misinformation is information that's incorrect or biased or misleading that's passed along by people who don't realize they're passing along information that is incorrect, biased, or misleading. Disinformation, on the other hand, is intended to be false. Reading through some of your work in a recent Q&A you did with the college, talked about the idea of information disorder. I have a general idea what this is, but kind of lay it out for us. Sure. Um, Information disorder is the concept that um, when people are operating, particularly in online or networked venues, it's very difficult to know what information to trust, what to believe, whom to trust, and what is accurate and what is inaccurate. And that leads to a great amount of information confusion, or we could say disorder. A few decades ago, most of us got our news and other information from sources that were professional journalists, that were vetted by editors, written by professional writers or scholars, and we really had a good idea of what sources to trust. Today, according to the most recent uh, Pew study, about two-thirds of adults in the United States get at least some information and information about the news from apps or websites, or social media, where really anyone can create the news. And this creates a confusion, or we could say disorder, not sharing what information to trust and where information is coming from. How did we get here? The idea of misinformation, disinformation, it is not new. It is not a recent decade thing that has bubbled to the surface. It has been around forever. Is this social media slash the internet that has just put this on steroids and given it the ability to spread so quickly and look so real that has just muddied the waters so or is it lazy to just dump it all at the feet of social media and such well i like the idea you suggest of social media is misinformation on steroids that's a good way to think about it We've had misinformation and disinformation in the media and in our discourse for centuries, um, way back as long as anybody can remember, and even longer ago than that. What's different now is social media and other networked tools enable us to share information much faster than ever before, um, to much larger audiences than ever before, and as you suggested, in many cases, to make it look more professional than ever before. 
before. So these ideas are not new. They're just more. Or as you said, on steroids. I like that. And you talk about the idea of information literacy. Obviously, that talks about understanding what you're reading and kind of thinking critically through it. Mm -hmm. Well, most of us, when we think of the term literacy, we think of the idea of being able to read and write. But to get through society today, core aspects of literacy are much more important than just understanding how to create messages and how to decode them. We have to understand how to evaluate them. We have to understand how information is created, how information is shared, and we have to have a critical eye to looking at all media information. And these can be messages in the media that are written, or um, they can be sounds, or they can be pictures and videos. So when we talk about information literacy, we're talking about all the available media messages and teaching people how to interpret them, understand where they're coming from, and make intelligent decisions about who they want to trust and what information they want to share. So when it comes to the idea of information literacy, and I want to branch off into a discussion about critical thinking in a minute, but this seems to be something that, given our new landscape, this should probably start to be baked in the cake of educational portfolios, you know, I mean, as something almost on the same level as reading, writing, math, because it's just kind of so critical to our day to day, no? Absolutely. Um, some states in the United States do require uh, some forms of media literacy and media literacy, understanding messages embedded in media is a growing trend across education in the United States. However, it's really not broadly taught and often not well taught. Very often we see in the United States that schools and the state governments that set school curricula really interpret information literacy as internet safety, immediately jumping to the idea that young people on the internet is dangerous or scary. Rather, we need to think much more holistically and think about benefits as well as risks of when, when we're online. For young people and adults, we see lots of benefits. There's social exchange, which has certainly been important, particularly during the pandemic. For many people, interacting in social media, texting, and other forms has been a lifeline during the pandemic. We also see there's educational use of media for learning, for numeracy, and many other benefits. But what we don't really see in the United States is good education for trying to teach people how to make risk and benefit determinations. What am I going to do online? Is it a good idea overall or are the risks not worth it? We need to have a much more nuanced and mature conversation with kids in schools starting young and working our way up and reducing the use of scare tactics, um, which often schools simply try to tell kids, stay off social media, it's bad. It's much more nuanced than that. There are benefits and there are risks, and we need to think intelligently and critically about what we're doing and what conversations we're engaging in online. You know, we talk about promoting information literacy, and we talk about kids and promoting it that way. It would seem to me, and I obviously haven't done any work on this or any studies on this, our biggest problem is kind of inverted. It's not necessarily the kids, but it seems to me it's older people who grew up in the idea that you could, that everything that came across news wise was 
able to be trusted, or at least that was the general thought, who now are some of the worst purveyors of stuff online, who pass it along or whatever. Is there anything we can do for older generations that are out of the educational system that I would put near the top of the people that seem to fall victim or traffic in this? Sure, sure. Um, some very good questions and ideas there. Um, we see in some of the work that's come out in the last several years that it's not just older people or even adults who are unsure how to operate in networked environments online, but everybody in every age, this is tough. This is tough to understand who to trust and where to get uh, trustworthy information. It's not just adults who fall, fall prey to this issue. Uh, we've seen in many studies, for example, that school children and even college students really have a difficulty in telling the difference between paid advertising content and scholarly information or reputable news information online. But it's a good question you ask. Older people are no longer in the school system. How can we help them become more information literate? Well, my work deals with public libraries. So, of course, as a promoter of public libraries, I would suggest that this is an important role for our public libraries. Librarians um, throughout the country are experts in information, how it's created and how to evaluate information. So we can turn to our public libraries and our information experts in those libraries to help teach people of all ages and all generations about this thing called information online, how to evaluate and how to understand it. What do we do about misinformation or even disinformation? I guess the question I have is, it's one thing to provide the proper information, but what if the audience won't accept it? I think one of the problems is confirmation bias and people want to believe that they're right and believe that their worldview is the way that everything is. And we are at a situation now where we can silo ourselves off and any dissenting viewpoints or anything like that, we can eliminate. How do you start to target the idea of people getting uncomfortable with what they're learning and it going against the worldview that they've built? Sure, sure. Important, important questions, too. Um, there are lots of different reasons why people believe misinformation and disinformation. Probably three of the big ones are a lack of understanding of how information is created. How does it get online? Who creates it and who puts it there? Um, secondly, the fact that most disinformation, information that people are using to try to uh, promote their ideas and change people's minds, most of it's very emotionally charged. Uh, conspiracy theories, for example, it's very common to see someone trying to spread a conspiracy theory to be yelling, angry, and very emotionally charged. Well, this emotionally charged content really speaks to us as human beings, and we tend to believe it naturally much more than we'd believe an academic, for example, who's speaking with statistics or um, speaking very calmly. And this means we're very prey to many of the messages in disinformation. Um, lastly, as you said, confirmation bias is a, is a big player. And this is the idea that we're naturally more likely to believe information that confirms something we already suspect to be true. So if you've heard about the um, birds aren't real campaign, for example, which is a misinformation campaign that was originally begun as a joke. Um, and most of the people I think who still follow it think it's a joke, but it's very popular with tens of thousands of people following it online. The idea that birds aren't real. Well, some people believe it 
very few people probably believe this campaign because it's intended to be funny. Um, but people who are suspicious of the government and who might think the government is spying on us might believe this campaign because one of the ideas of this campaign is that birds are actually, um, some of them are drones that are spying on people. Now, most people would immediately reject that idea as absurd. We know that birds are real, but somebody who's already very deeply suspicious of the government is more likely to believe this idea than someone else. So this is the concept of confirmation bias. Or much more simply, if somebody puts out a lie about a politician I don't like, I'm much more likely to believe that idea than if that same lie were about a politician whom I do like. So what do we do? Here we have this very difficult information and biased environment with all this emotionally charged information floating around. What's the solution? Well, there is no one simple solution. Uh, what we've done mostly in the United States is cede the responsibility for policing online speech in social media to the content companies, to Facebook, to Twitter, and the people who run these organizations. Right now, most of the responsibility falls upon them to police the conversation in their own online platforms. Most of us would argue that they haven't done a great job. Um, partly because it's not their role and partly because their role is to make a profit as they run a company. Instead, we need a multifaceted approach at lots of different levels. We need an education approach, which we were speaking about before, teaching young people at all ages in the school system what is information? How is it created? Who should we believe? How do we evaluate it? Um, and so on. We need a technical approach, some approaches that are built into these systems. And we're working on those to try to come up with ways to identify false information and misleading information. We need a policy approach. I would argue we need the government to step in and to start looking at some community standards and creating policies or government laws, uh, government rules that are associated with policing misinformation and disinformation. And of course, an economic approach is also necessary. We need money to fund this education system, to fund um, the policy approach and so on. So it's very difficult, but something we can work on in different steps to try to improve this overall environment. To your point about kind of leaving it at the feet of the tech companies or the social media companies to police this and gives us somebody to wag our finger at and blame for the problem so that we don't have to look inwards. One of the big problems with this type of stuff for me that is baked into it, I feel like our incentive structure financially for information is almost completely inverted to the way it should be. A conspiracy theory podcast, you see these people making all this money and having all this money to spend around. Somebody doing important public health research has to go running around for funding and they're beholden to colleges or corporations to give them grants and stuff like that. It almost feels like a fundamental problem in our society that that feels very overwhelming because I don't know how we get at that. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. And again, I'd say a multi-pronged approach in education, trying to expose people to some of this important work that's going on. The public health research, you said, for example, try to expose that to people at different educational levels and to, to fund more research. 
But I would also fault a little bit some of the academics as well. We as an academic community need to do a better job of making our research and our work more available to the public. Um, some, some researchers are fantastic at doing this, but others of us tend to be more insular and really talk to the scholarly community. We need to do a better job of making information available to the everyday population and making it more interesting to them. I mentioned I want to talk about critical thinking, and I mean, critical thinking is woven into this entire conversation. But specifically, how do we get to a point, because you mentioned earlier, we were talking confirmation bias, that it's easy to believe that politician X, who I disagree with, voted for this bill that made my life harder. And I find that very easy to believe. And it's not true. I get how somebody, though, can go down that road relatively simply. How did we get to a place where a not minute portion of the population believes that certain politicians are lizard people? And I'm not trying to make a joke here. Like, th that is so far over the bridge. I don't know how we could have critical thinking failures like that in functioning adults. How does that happen? And I don't mean to dump a question like that on you, but like everything you've talked about, there's different levels of this. And I can see how it's easy to, to fall for one, but the other one, I don't even know how you get started there. Yeah, that's extremely, extremely, um, extremely hard to imagine. Now, I am not an information historian, but I imagine that there has been a small subset of people all along who had let's say, very out there ideas. Uh, politicians are lizard people, for example. And this is one of the reasons that social media has brought this to the fore is it amplifies the message um, and it helps bring people together who have some of these rather um, unusual and even dangerous ideas. Now, this is not to suggest by any means that social media is dangerous, but rather that it reflects and amplifies human discourse. And that's why we need more of an education a policy and better understanding to help increase our, our role of critical thinking. I would somewhat fault our education system and say that we need to do a better job of teaching people to be really critical thinkers. With my own children, for example, if you ask me the one most important lesson I taught them, it was challenge everything. This, of course, proved difficult when they were teenagers and decided they would challenge me. But I still say it's great advice. And we need to do more of that in our schools, teach people to challenge ideas and think for themselves. But again, I do not think that these rather out there and radical ideas are new. They've been in humanity since humanity was able to talk and share ideas. The difference is now they're much more easily passed along. There's something else I want to talk to that we haven't really talked about, I think is very important to the message, that when we're talking about disinformation in particular, very often we're talking about power inequities. We're talking about issues of power and privilege. And many people use disinformation to try to exercise their power over groups in society who have reduced power. Um, it's really important that we teach people about issues of power and how language, discourse, a discourse online can be used for groups who have power to continue to hold people down and hold people back who don't have power in society. 
that's one of the other reasons that this discourse on misinformation and disinformation is so important right now in this national movement we're seeing awakening about um, inequities in society. And all these different ideas that we've talked about for reducing the amount of misinformation and disinformation in online discourse, they really come back to challenging our structures in society that enable us to have these kinds of um, bullying and other conversations online. We have to change the governmental structures, we have to change the funding structures, and we have to change educational structures to understand better and reduce these inequities, then hand in hand, hopefully we'll see a reduction of this kind of speech online. You've talked about a lot of things we can do. And just to kind of bring it home as we wrap this up, someone wants to learn, wants to become more educated, wants to help the people around them, whether they traffic in mis- and disinformation or not. Give me the bullet points once again. Where do you focus? What do you work to become more information literate? First of all, whenever you have a piece of information that you're thinking about, always considered who created it. All information is constructed and messages are created by humans. You want to know who created that information. So when someone sends you an article, you want to figure out who wrote it or where was it published or what is this piece of information? Secondly, then you want to ask yourself why? Why was this information created? Because most of the time, if not always, there's a motivation or a purpose. It it can be just to inform, it can be for mischief, um, all kinds of different reasons. You want to consider why the information was created. Next, when you're talking to people online, you want to practice empathy. Try to understand where other people are coming from. This is related to my next point, which is reducing angered uh, discourse online. As much as possible, you want to avoid engaging in angry discourse online because really emotionally charged discussions uh, very often don't lead anywhere productive. Instead, when you have a piece of information you're thinking about sharing, you want to calm down, think about it rationally, and maybe take a little time before you share something that you think um, that might be likely to engage other people in emotional debates. So really, we want to think about who created information, why was it created? We want to try to understand with empathy why other people are saying what they're saying, and we want to try to calm down and reduce some of the highly emotionally charged discourse that we have online. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs>